Before we get started with today's show, I wanted to tell you about another great ESPN podcast. The Hoop Collective with Brian Winhurst focuses on life in and around the NBA playoffs. Twice a week, Brian is joined by ESPN NBA insiders, including Tim McMahon and Tim Bontemps, every Friday. That's The Hoop Collective. Listen wherever you get your podcasts and also available on YouTube. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Right Time. My name is Bomani Jones. Thanks for listening wherever you get your podcast. Rate us, review us, give us five stars. You only give us four stars. I'm inclined to believe you are a hater. Coming up on this episode of The Right Time, we're going to talk about how the Milwaukee Bucks came up short, and we got your stories about your mama showing up to school to check the teacher. But first... I ain't getting into this business to be wrong all the time. Nobody got up and was like, yo, what do you want to do when you grow up? I want to get on TV, radio, and podcasts and tell people how wrong I am about stuff. Here the NBA go just rendering everything that I said previously into useless rubbish. Damn, you know what I'm saying? I'm looking over here at the West. Two teams I thought had no chance to win the West. And here they are squaring up against each other. Phoenix down there, I thought they was going to walk through the whole thing. Nope. Instead, they were like, we really want to get embarrassed on national television. Like, we won 64 games, and the only reason we did it is so that we could look stupid on TV. And that's exactly what happened, man. They look like a bunch of bums out there against Dallas. What was wild to me about the way they got destroyed on Sunday night. Like, sometimes you watch a game, and we'll talk about this in the context of the East a little bit later. But sometimes you watch a game and they were hitting shots and you weren't, right? Like it's not necessarily strategic, schematic. Y'all are making a bunch of threes. They not making threes. Y'all are going to win. The math just lines up on that. And if you looked at the box score with Dallas and didn't see the game, like my inclination would be to look at a box score from something like Dallas and Phoenix. And then I would just be like, oh, okay, well, this team is hitting shots. This team, what? No big deal. Except we did watch that game. And I saw something. Remember all that talk we had last week? I mean, Dominique would talk about about like being champions and you advance past a certain point and it gives you some confidence or whatever it is. Phoenix, who won the West last year, were up 2-0 in the finals, got close enough to the whole thing to taste it. And they just came out there and looked like they mailed it in, all right? The big thing that got me was DeAndre Ayton, way to make me look smart, DeAndre Ayton, played 17 minutes in that game. I think he only had three fouls. Monty Williams is asked after the game, why DeAndre Ayton only played 17 minutes? And he said, it's internal. Okay, you get to after the game, Chris Paul is saying he's hurt. Whoa. This looked like a team where we watched them struggling against New Orleans and we watched what happened in this game. And even with the idea of Chris Paul being hurt, does it feel to you that this team lost because of basketball? And what I mean by that, I'm going to give you a story. I'm not going to give you the names to tell you who the people are. But this is like 30-something years ago. I was talking to a colleague about this. And he was saying that one year he was talking to somebody in the business about who was going to do what in the NBA playoffs. And somebody was like, I just know I'm not picking these guys. And he's like, why not? And he said the reason was the team had one of those two best players. He told his wife that the other best player was cheating on his wife. And so wife of this other player goes and tells wife, of the player who is being cheated on that she is being cheated on. That team got upset in the first round of the playoffs. You understand what I'm saying? 
stuff happens that we don't know about. And maybe I'm overstating exactly how much it is. Maybe I'm overestimating to a degree. But I still feel pretty confident saying maybe we'll find out about in some total. But I'm going to wonder, in part, whatever happened with Aiton at the end of the game, I'm going to wonder if it's something that could have been avoided and Robert Sarver would have just gave him his money. Instead of trying to hardball him and who knows what the issues have been, they should have just gave that dude his money. But that's not what people really want to talk about after that Phoenix game. You know what people really want to talk about after that Phoenix game. Y'all just want to dog Chris Paul. Like, that is what the sport is right now. I was watching a little Get Up, and they had Patrick Beverly on there. And they might as well have called Silky Johnson, Buck Nasty, any of the time haters. Like, that's all they needed to do. The level of satisfaction that Patrick Beverly had about talking about Chris Paul and what Chris Paul was or was not. Well, if you've been in the league for 17 years and you've been given all the freedom that he's been given, and, you know, you're the president of the Players Association, so you know how that goes with the referees. Like, I'm, I'm just saying, it was, it was a detailed level of hating why Chris Paul should have done X, Y, and Z at this point in his career. And this is Patrick Beverly, dog. It would be fair for Chris Paul to say, sir, you have no room to speak on my career. Like, he tried to make the argument. He's like, well, J.J., if you had all the freedom, you'd probably go down as one of the best shooters of all time, right? Like, the whole spin on it. Keep it in mind, J.J. Redding, somebody who played with Chris Paul, he got a whole lot of open shots. Now, J.J. made the point, and I get where a lot of people are coming from, but they're like, the problem with Chris Paul is he's just not good enough for you to win a championship with him as your best player. And I don't think it's a matter of him not being good enough for you to do that. I don't think he's big enough for you to do that. To me, that's what it comes down to. Now, maybe the thing is he is the ultimate floor raiser. Your team will not be sorry. Put Chris Paul on the team and you're not going to be bad. I guess the question then becomes how much of a ceiling raiser is he? And the truth is he's never before this year been the best player on like a 65 win team or something like that. He hasn't been that guy. I go back and I look at the teams. Which of those teams was supposed to win a championship? Now, maybe you're making the argument that for Chris Paul to be as good as we say that he is, he should win championships with teams that shouldn't win championships. But we don't feel that way about literally anybody else in the NBA. LeBron James' early portion of his career gave us a lesson. They're like, hey, man, you're going to need some dudes with you. You're not going to be able to do this all by yourself. What you got with Chris Paul is a small guard who, especially at this point in his career, keeps wearing down as the year goes on. And now they're saying at the end of this one, he was hurt, just like he had been hurt at the end of that year with Houston. Some dudes maybe just ain't supposed to win it. I don't think Chris Paul not winning a championship is an indictment of him. I do think that Chris Paul not winning a championship is a separator between he and like the best point guards of all time. So I believe I told you guys about that time, my buddy Vinny started hollering at me on the phone because I said that Chris Paul was a better player than Isaiah Thomas. Vinny is from Detroit. They take that Isaiah stuff personally. They're making sure we get him where he needs to be on the list. Detroit versus everybody when it comes to Isaiah Thomas, just so you know. But Vinny's point was a good one, and this is the one that no matter what any numbers tell you, what you do or don't remember or anything else, there has never been a player his size that you could say, game on the line, we're trying to win a championship, go get it. Never. There's not been a guy, not Joe Allen Iverson, not Tiny Archibald, not any of these guys. There ain't never been any player that size 
who could do the kinds of things that you often have to do to be the best player on a team to win a championship. Maybe the best quarter of NBA basketball of all time is Isaiah Thomas going 25 in game six in 1988 on the bad angle, right? That ain't something Chris Paul can do. That ain't something Chris Paul is going to give you. So if we're counting Steph Curry in the point guard category, which he is, right? There's no discussion who like historically is better, Chris Paul or Steph Curry. It's Steph Curry. And it's not just because Steph Curry was on better teams, but I can be like, yo, well, Steph going to give us this 35 because somebody got to go out here and give us 35. Chris Paul isn't that dude. You know, like he had that 14 for 14 game the other week, but hell, even that's the first round. You know what I mean? Like he's just not going to be that guy. He is almost a victim of his own success because that point guard stuff, there's something to it. Like, I don't think that that's an exaggeration. I don't think it's something that people shouldn't break out when it comes to Chris Paul. I don't think I've ever seen anybody capable of orchestrating a half-court offense like Chris Paul. The thing is, that's a regular season skill. That's an 82-game season skill, largely. But I think they showed last year that it can be a playoff thing. And that's why I feel like something had to be wrong with that team. Now, I want to move off of that quickly because I want to get to the East stuff. But y'all got a misunderstanding about what I think about Luka Doncic, I believe. I just have a question about that style of play, regardless of how well he manages to execute that style of play. What I was just saying about what Chris Paul can't do, clearly that does not apply to Mr. Doncic. He is a dude that's like, all right, fellas, I'm about to get this 35. Now, what's been a problem with him in the past with some of that is by the fourth quarter, they run out of gas, right? Like, I felt like that's what it looked like in game five against Phoenix. Man, but they just went out there and destroyed them boys. And while I get everything y'all are saying about he ain't got nobody else on the team, Spencer Dinwiddie scored 30 points last night. That does not mean Spencer Dinwiddie is somebody different than Spencer Dinwiddie is. I'm just saying that that was the first time two teammates had scored 30 in a game in a closeout. I know at least in the West, maybe the whole league, since Shaq and Kobe. Like All I'm just telling you guys is those other dudes are NBA players. And you're going to need to figure out a way to get more out of them if you're going to win a championship. Both teams, I just didn't think would get this far. One of them, I think, is going to get the pleasure of getting smoked in the finals. Now, of course, go bet the opposite based on everything else I've told you this postseason. But that's what I think is going to wind up happening. And my thing with the Warriors is, offensively, what do they do that's exceptional? And if you don't have the answer for that, then you understand why I'm not there. They don't have a singular dominant offensive player. Like Steph Curry, at least this year, has not been that guy. What Luka Doncic is, Steph Curry is not. Like, I think it's fair to say Luka Doncic for 2022 was the best player in that series. I'd say that. I don't think you have to guard Draymond Green. Like, I was listening to Pat Bev. Actually, he was talking about, um, well, who's Luka going to guard against the Warriors? I have him guard Draymond Green. He ain't got to guard nobody. Like, that's what I would do. But no, nah, that dude went out there and played historic basketball for two games. Just so you guys know, Foxworth Fridays are taped on Thursday. So people, when it came out on Friday, was like, I can't believe Bomani's saying this after Thursday's game. I didn't. I said it before Thursday's game. I still think y'all just need to ask yourself why y'all love that so much, though. Not that he's not good. Not that I can't see it. But you know damn well what's going on here. You do. I ain't got to say he's bad to make that point. You do. Damn it. If there's anything I feel very confident saying, Friday night, I call my brother. Win or lose. The one thing I know about this series is there ain't no question who the best player in the NBA is. And there is no question who the best player in the NBA is. It is Giannis. And he just put up a seven-game series that left no question that he is the best player 
But man, the margins are thin in the NBA right now. So many good players, so many good teams, and not having Chris Middleton. I mean, with Chris Middleton, the Bucs walk. But they didn't have Chris Middleton. And they had peak Giannis. Peak, I tell you. And what happened in that game? Boston kept making all them shots. Milwaukee made a call. And to a degree, I respect Budenholz for this, even though I understand how many people going to kill him. Budenholz had decided, we're going to give Grant Williams open shots. He hadn't been making them. Let's see if he makes them now. But damn, dog, if you let him take 18 of them, eventually he's going to find a groove. And if he finds the groove early, you might want to flip up a little bit. But this is the way the Bucs play and have always played. We're going to stop you from getting points in the paint, and we're going to let you shoot really far shots. That's the game. That's what they do. That didn't work. You know, and so Boston headed to the conference finals where they're going to play against Miami. We don't think about the Celtics as being battle-tested. But the truth is they are. They just haven't made the NBA finals. Like, I think they said that was Jalen Brown's sixth game seven in his career. You know, these guys have been to conference finals. These guys have had to go out there and stand toe-to-toe with LeBron James. You know, they've had the, they've dead the dealing with Kyrie stuff. Like, those guys that are the core of that team, Marcus Smart, Jalen Brown, and Jason Tatum, they've done a lot. They've seen a lot. They're not likely to scare, one would think. And that's what Jason Tatum demonstrated, if nothing else, man, is that he ain't going to scare. He came out there and had huge games when they needed huge games. But they are going up against them, not scaring this bunch of dudes in the NBA. This is going to be physical. Like, you look at how physical the Milwaukee-Boston series is. Now we're going to take Milwaukee out, and we're going to add Jimmy Butler, P.J. Tucker, Bam, Kyle Lowry. This is going to be a slugfest. And I think it can be as good, if not better, than that Milwaukee series was because I think it's going to still have that same intensity and that same physicality. I think they're going to wind up winning it. But Gabe, I feel like just because we wasn't on when this happened that we cannot miss talking about the madness in Philadelphia. I think Doc Rivers is in a very similar place to Chris Paul. It is because they spent so much time together. But what I mean by that is we got a lot to blame Doc Rivers for. And a lot to say where his teams would come up short. Were they supposed to win? Like, I actually think Doc did a great job this year with this team. Daryl Morey sent him out there. You should have traded Ben Simmons to start the year, move on, clean slate, and you had a chance. And then after that, you did. And then you brought in James Harden. The connection with Embiid doesn't quite seem to be there to me. And also, he doesn't seem to quite be there, at least in the incarnations of him that we had seen previously. And so this whole thing just cracked, and you're going to have the blame Doc. You're going to have the blame Harden. But to me, this was a crisis of management. Like, this was a front office who misunderstood some of the things that you have to do to build a basketball team and some of the things that you just have to do to keep peace. Yeah, but they were a four seed. They were a four seed that lost in six to a one seed. The problem for Doc is Doc got out there whining about it. I think I did a terrific job. Dog, 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 don't say that. 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 I don't care how bad it is. I don't care how bad they treating you. Don't do that. You're not, you're not going to win in that city that way, right? Like, and that seems to be a thing with Maury that's interesting to me is that once Ben Simmons had the game seven he had, he could never come back in that building, and you needed to know that, and you needed to make accommodations and be like, yo, we're going to have a Ben Simmons sale on this date. You want to get on a Ben Simmons? Come let me know. We'll get him out of here, right? Ben Simmons sale, everything must go. Like, that's what they needed to do, and then they didn't. And then they brought in Harden, and yo, it's not going to work with that dude in that city. 
like what his get down was and how it went. You ain't going to be out here taking two shots in the second half of the biggest game of the year and think those people are going to forget where they never had any reason to love you in the first place. Like with Ben Simmons, they had reason to love him because they got in on the ground floor that Harden, you a mercenary. Like you imagine if they traded for Moses Malone in 1982 and then the biggest game of the year, he only took two shots. I guarantee you they would not have his jersey retired. Promise you that. You a mercenary to them. There's no affection there. You got to bring it. He ain't bring it. What are they supposed to do? This is what I'm going to put on the radar for you, okay? And I'm not going to tell you I've talked to all these people in the NBA about it. I've talked to a couple, right? I'm looking at the game tree here, right? I would not be surprised if Joel Embiid tries to get out of Philly this offseason. The reason I say that is this. They are stuck with James Harden, whether it be next year or for some extended period of time. There's no way in the world that James Harden's going to pass up that $47 million. None. Maybe they figure out a way to stretch that out where he gets more long-term money, but he's going to be on the team next year. I don't think it has worked with him and Embiid. Embiid don't talk about James Harden like he talked about Jimmy Butler, for example. Like, I ain't seen that. Harden will hold you up from winning a championship, I think, just because of where he is physically. Stick around for what? That's all I'm saying. Like, a guy like Harden can close your window up, even if you think he's still good. Like, that's part of the problem they got in Phoenix, is that they got all these young guys who are signed, and like, even they signed DeAndre Ayton, they got all these young guys that are signed, but the problem is they got this old guy that's signed. And he's the person who closes the window. That's the thing with Harden. If that ain't his bag, if he don't really dig it, and he doesn't think this team is going to win, where does this turn around? How do you turn James Harden into something that's going to make you better? Like, do you have an answer for that? Because I don't. And so I look at that, and I see Embiid, and it's like, yo, Daryl Morey's a figure-it-out guy. So maybe he can figure it out. Like, I don't want to pretend like this isn't a dude that knows how to do his job. Maybe he can find a way to figure it out. I'm just saying, if I'm... Embiid and James Harden comes back and we don't have a talk about how he's going to be getting out of here, then I got to get out of here. We can't both do this. Because on top of that, and I don't think this is being discussed enough about the Sixers and the way they're building the team and the way it's shaking out, their second best player is a little guard. Like if you talk about getting past James Harden, their next best player is Tyrese Maxey. And this the Chris Paul thing. How much faith can you put in a little guard? It might be some drama up in there in the offseason. The East is back to being the best conference in the NBA. It's been like 30 years, but we're back there. The East is what there is to talk about. And baby, it's going to be a lot to talk about after these finals. But during these finals, oh boy, I think that's going to wind up being great basketball. And we all deserve it. We know you can't be on top of all the news and information of the day. No need for the social media feeds. We got you now. If you haven't heard. All right, Bo, this first story comes from business. This is David Leonhardt with the New York Times. Nearly every new parent knows the fear. Is my baby getting enough food? Right now, that fear is acute for a lot of parents because there is a shortage of baby formula across the country. There are shortages of lots of things, of course, cars, semiconductor chips, furniture, and more, because the pandemic messed up our supply chains. Baby formula was suffering from some of those same problems, And then, earlier this year, there was a bacteria outbreak at a baby formula plant in Michigan owned by the company Abbott. It led that plant to shut down and made the baby formula shortage much, much worse. Now many parents are struggling to find formula on the shelves, particularly if their baby has an allergy or another medical condition. That means the baby can drink only one kind of formula. For parents, it's terrifying. For our economy, 
I think it highlights a bunch of larger issues that we face. It's a sign of just how powerful big business has become. The formula industry is one of those industries that's dominated by just a few companies, which means those companies have a ton of power and a problem that at any one of them can really ripple across the entire industry. It's also an example of how our government bureaucracy often doesn't work that well. Europe makes a lot of baby formula that in some ways appears to be healthier than American baby formula, but we don't let it into this country, basically because of protectionism. And then finally, there's a larger issue. As a country, we don't even always treat our kids very well. Relative to other countries, we spend much less of our government budget on kids than those other countries do. Just think about this. We have universal health insurance for old people. It's called Medicare. We don't have anything like that for kids. It makes you wonder, if this crisis had been affecting adults rather than kids, would we have started paying attention to it much sooner than we did? All right, so it's funny, right before we started this, you know, we tried to figure out where to say, you know, how to say where the story came from. And Gabe is like, business? And I'm like, yeah, it's business. And that's kind of a sad part, that this is business. The stakes are too high for some things to leave them in the hands of capitalism. The thing I always say about capitalism is, capitalism is great for the stuff you want. It is a problem for the things you need. The model and the nature of capitalism is that every now and then some people aren't going to get some stuff. And there's a rational explanation as to why they don't get it and da-da-da and everything else, you dig? But in the end, some people are just not going to get some stuff, and it's simply baked into the cake of capitalism. That's what we wind up with here on this shortage thing. And that's just terrifying. Like, this is all broken. This whole thing is broken. Now, I do want to take this moment very briefly. I do work with an organization called the National Diaper Bank Network, and they provide diapers, period supplies, all kinds of things to poor and working class families in this country who need them. Like diaper need is a major thing. Diaper need is not the same thing, obviously, as infant formula shortage, but there is a larger macro issue how this country does a poor job taking care of its literally most helpless people, right? These ain't adults that you can blame on stuff or anything else. And these people who wind up with these shortages ain't folks that's out here like smoking up their paychecks necessarily. Like it's really just hardworking people who can't afford diapers. Like I always tell people, if you're buying people like they're all having a baby gift, man, get them as many diapers as possible. And kids run through them. And like, you just think about it in the context of, can you imagine the stress of your life if you can't talk and you can't get nobody to understand anything you saying and you just got to kick it in a dirty diaper all the time because y'all ain't got no more. Like that's the life of the child. Like just think about that on a happiness level. Now think about how that plays out to the family of this child and everything that goes there. And so I did a campaign. We already reached the goal that we were on for the campaign, but I would appreciate if you go check it out. I put it under the URL, ilovejoshallen.com. If you remember the story on that, it's a long story. But really, just go, ilovejoshallen.com. It's the easiest way to get to the campaign. And I would appreciate if you have it, if you're able, to give a little something to the National Diaper Bank Network. Because really, we got a lot of children and families of those children that are suffering in this country, basically because of all this capitalism and how it all plays out, right? We shouldn't have to do these things to be helpful. This ain't going to fix a formula shortage, but it can help people who are dealing with similar things. So I just wanted to point that out to you. All right. This second one comes from science. Hi, this is Nathan Solis with the Los Angeles Times. So last week, two sisters found a skull embedded in a sandbar at Lake Mead. And this was the second trace of human remains found at the Nevada Reservoir that has seen historically low water levels due to an unrelenting drought gripping the West. 
Earlier this month, a boater found a barrel submerged in mud, and inside the barrel were the skeletal remains of a person who homicide investigators say was shot and dumped into Lake Mead in the late 70s or early 80s. The development at Lake Mead has worried and fascinated a lot of people, including two distinct groups who don't usually have a lot to talk about, mob historians and climate scientists. Mob historian Jeff Schumacher with the Mob Museum in Las Vegas said while mobsters have been known to use barrels to dispose of bodies, most mob hits in Nevada likely ended with a desert burial. Still, people are now on the lookout for more barrels with bodies at Lake Mead as the waters continue to drop. Climate scientist Bradley Udall at Colorado State University says the region is witnessing a change to the very way the American West looks like as water becomes more scarce. Gave a feel bad. This is an indicator of a like real climate situation. And I'm like, ooh, who body going to wash up? You think Jimmy Hoffa in there? Like, I know Jimmy Hoffa isn't in there, but wouldn't it be wild if Jimmy Hoffa was in there? Yo, we just... See, Gabe, I'm a little older than you, right? If I'm not mistaken, you hit the big 3-0 this year, right? 31. 3-0 was last year. I knew you was right here in this early, ni- you know, in that early 90s range that makes me feel very old. You'll have to forgive me. But my point simply being, I've been hearing about this stuff for as long as you've been alive. They tried to tell us, right? Like, I remember in the 90s, man, they tried to get that Earth Day thing cracking. They would have us in all kinds of video. They made it seem really cool just taking care of the environment and, like, recycling. Don't be wasting all that water. Like, all this stuff. They was really trying to tell us what was going on. But you know what I want? A Ford Mustang. Right? Like, we was just out here like, no, we want cars that guzzle gas. We want to live right now. Like time is of the essence. It's the magic moment, everything else. That was the whole way that we wanted to propagate our get down. That was the entire thing. And I just look at all these stories and everything that's happening. And I'm just like, damn, really? Really? I also have to say this, Gabe, and I'm curious about this. Where They said the mob, most of the time, if they take somebody out, it would be a desert burial. And I guess that would make sense because it'd be a lot harder for them to figure out exactly where it was. Like, we just buried somebody in the desert. Good luck figuring out exactly where that was. Like, yo, that grain of sand looks familiar. Make a right. That ain't really going to be what it is. But I would have thought they would have thrown more people in the water. But I guess it'd be too easy to, to get caught up. Maybe that's what it is. But hell, the way things is going, man, it's going to get so hot that they're going to burn up all that sand and they're going to find them bodies too. Dude, I was going to say, I guess we're going to find out if they buried more bodies in the water <laughs> as the water continues to go down. That's yes. happening with all of these lakes in the southwest is that they're just getting so dry that you can almost see the bottom. Yo, and I'm like, we really need to talk about this a little bit more. I promise there's the level of discussion that we need to be having, fellas. We really, really do. And we don't. We just don't. We've given up. We've given up on the earth. The whole earth. We have just surrendered it to money. Wow, this has become a decidedly anti-capitalist episode of the right time. This story comes from politics. Here it is. My name is Anna Wolf. I'm an investigative reporter for Mississippi Today, a statewide nonprofit news organization. And for the last four years, I've been investigating the state's misspending of federal welfare funds, the money that states are supposed to use to help lift people out of poverty. Out of at least 77 million, this is one of the biggest scandals in state history, former NFL quarterback and Mississippi native Brett Favre was behind 8 million that was diverted away from the program. 2 million in stolen welfare funds went to a pharmaceutical venture that he was promoting. 5 million 
million went to a volleyball stadium he was trying to build at his alma mater, University of Southern Mississippi, and he received an additional one million himself to promote the state's anti-poverty program. He's since returned the one million. The money came from a nonprofit that had contracted with the state's welfare agency to provide services to poor people, and two leaders at the nonprofit have pleaded guilty to illegally funneling money to the volleyball stadium and Favre's drug company. But what I found that hasn't come up in the criminal case is that it was actually Brett Favre who secured or suggested using grant funds for both projects. And not only that, but he suggested offering stock in the drug company to the nonprofit officials and Mississippi's governor at the time, Phil Bryant, in exchange for their help. The pharmaceutical venture was purportedly developing a drug to prevent brain damage from concussions, and Brett Favre was investing in the drug and expected to make a big profit when the product finally started selling. Text messages that we first uncovered last month showed that Favre informed the governor his project was receiving funds from the state. This was a deal that was completely shielded from public view. And that the governor agreed to accept the company's incentive package two days after he left office in early 2020. Most recently, the state filed civil charges against Brett Favre, saying that he must return over $3 million to the state. But while others are expected to go off to prison soon, the athlete and the former governor haven't faced any criminal charges, though the investigation is ongoing. After our series published in April, the nonprofit officials received a pretty generous plea deal that suggests that they have information that prosecutors find valuable. So we expect to learn a lot more in coming months. All right, a couple things. One, Mississippi Today does really good work. I don't like I read it every day, you know what I'm saying? But I know every time I come across something they do, it's really good. So check out what they got going because God knows Mississippi needs a little more sunlight. Did you know the million dollar man is also involved in this? I don't know if that means much to you, but a gentleman by the name of Ted DiBiase, you don't know nothing about Ted DiBiase? Ted DiBiase is a wrestler. What we're talking about here is absolutely something that the million dollar man character would do right? Steal from poor people to build a volleyball stadium. Yeah, that's a total million dollar man situation. Anytime something like this is going on and they're like, yo, Ted DiBiase's involved. I don't know anything about Ted DiBiase as an actual person. I just don't know. His brand is not helping people. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's not what it is. But the reason that you could get away with this is very simple. The way they see it, that welfare money is going generally to poor people, but specifically to black people. And they don't believe we deserve the money for whatever the reason it happens to be. And so you're Brett Favre. God knows how much money you got. And you got to steal from them to put on for the volleyball stadium. But you can't lead a fundraising drive from your boosters. All this money everybody else raising for all these reasons right now. You can't go get the money for a volleyball stadium. So you got to steal from the people of your state. Like that's indefensible. And so I guess part of where Favre is, it's not like Favre is an announcer or anything. And so he's just a general background figure. But this is really, really low class to me. I'm blown away by these super rich people who just ain't got enough money. And maybe Brett Favre doesn't have the money, right? Maybe he's lost it. Oh, Brett Favre, he's so charming. He just loves to go home and cut his grass. This is your simple man right here. This is him cutting the grass and stealing from people. Hey, this is Bomani. You have reached the right time voicemail. Say whatever you want. Get creative with it. But this is your place to talk back to the show. So talk back. Peace. All right, Bomani. So this is kind of like a part two from last week. Stories about that time your mom had to come up to school. This Mm -hmm. one, at your suggestion, that time that mom came up to school and had to check your teacher. We got some Mm -hmm. good ones. Our first one comes from Brian in Philly. Here it is. 
I'm glad you picked this topic because last week's topic, I just kept remembering and I'm thinking to myself, like, I hope they do one about the parent checking the teacher because that's what I have experience with as well. So my mom was a bit of a legend in my middle school in Trenton, New Jersey, because she came up to the school once. My sister was put into a home economics class, which should probably tell you a little bit about my age. And my mom wanted her to be in a computer class because she realized at that time that needing no computers was going to be beneficial. So she went up to the school. She asked politely. Teacher said no. We put all the ladies in home economics. She said, I want my daughter in computers. Said no. We put all the girls in home economics. My mom grabbed her by the collar and lifted her up off the ground. She said, you're going to put my daughter in computer class because she's going to need this for her to be successful in her life. She already know how to cook and clean and take care of kids. So my sister was put into the class, and I did not realize just how effective my mother was until many years later when I was having a problem with the teacher, and my mom got called up to the school. And when she walked in, guidance counselor saw her and immediately did whatever she asked her to do because I did not have the benefit of the same last name as my sister. So my guidance counselor didn't know exactly who I was, but she found out real quick. Thanks, bro. Yo, my mama was a legend in a very similar way. Like, my mama didn't really have to come to check too many people on my behalf. Gay, did I tell the story? I think I told you off the air, but I tell the story on the podcast about my favorite story of my mama coming to the school to shut something down. Potentially. There are many stories right. over the years. I would say it again. My sister had some teacher that didn't appear to be up to snuff, shall we say. And so my mom decided that she was going to run a recon mission to kind of just see what was going on there. And so my mama offered to come and grade papers with the woman, right? And I imagine that that woman and my mother were about the same age around this time, right? And so mama goes up to grade papers. Got it. So they're grading papers. And the teacher looks at my mama and says, oh, well, did Tiari tell you that we were learning about Indian tribes? It's the 70s. And she's like, Indian tribes? He's like, yeah, yeah, we, we learned this week about the five original tribes. And my mom is like, the original tribes? That doesn't seem to make sense. And she says, yes, they were the ones that were always here. And my mom said, well, where did the other ones come from? To which the teacher replied, the pilgrims brought them. At which point my mother gathered her things and went to the principal's office and let them know a change is going to come. That story each time. <laughs> never gets old. <laughs> All right, this next one comes from G in Birmingham. We're going to take the story back to the early 90s. When I was in school one time, the clock was broken in the classroom. The teacher asked to borrow a watch to kind of keep up with the time when it comes to our test and everything. So... I let the teacher borrow my watch at the time. Well, went to PE, band, did some other things that ended up there. Went to the teacher like, hey, I need my watch. And she tried to tell me that somebody came in the classroom and stole the watch. Well, I went home, had to tell my parents that, and my next-door neighbor happened to be a teacher at the school, and she told my mom the teacher I was dealing with was known to be stealing things. So, of course, that naturally made my mom mad. So my mom had to take off of work to come up to the school the next day. Now, this is early 90s. My mom wears high-heel shoes to work every day. So she came into school to talk to the teacher. The teacher tried to give her some crazy explanation. And my mom told me to go to the back of the classroom. And I noticed my mom's voice got a little bit lower where she didn't really want me to hear what she said to the teacher. All I know is my mom started pointing at those high heel shoes and then walked on out the door. 
and let's just say within 24 hours, I was the owner of a brand new top of the line Casio watch. Love the show, Bo. Appreciate everything. <laughs> she pointed at the shoes and dropped that voice like, yo, so, that, so she be stealing. Oh, okay. I need to go figure this out. And there it went from there. You can just imagine by pointing at the high heels what the explanation was. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and by the way, they're like three or four different options. They can puncture. All right, this last one, no name or location, but it's a good one to close this out. Here it is. What's up, Bo? Man, my mom came to the school and she checked one of my teachers. It was my senior year. I went to Catholic school. My mom was a public school teacher in the same town. And she actually got a call from the superintendent that she needed to come have a meeting after school. I didn't get in trouble at the time, but I had a teacher that just would not leave me alone. So I just had to ask her, like, why are you being such a What's the deal? You're a I guess I thought I skirted all this uh, trouble I was attempted to get in. So my mom showed up after school, and we're sitting in the superintendent's office, and my mom finally just starts asking her, you know, I know you have two young daughters. How would you feel if every day they came to school dreading a teacher that's going to bully them? Wouldn't that just break your heart? And from one professional to another, how could you do this? And we all sat there and listened to my mom berate this teacher until she started crying. She then apologized to me. And whenever we were leaving the office, my mom told me that you protect in public and you correct in private. I was protected and then I was promptly corrected. <laughs> Dang, I love that idea. Public school teacher come to the Catholic school. She probably had beef anyway. Had to be done. That's click stuff though, right? You just don't do it in front of them other people. Now, I don't know if that fully applies to your children with the teacher. Like, I think there's room for both. I feel like mom and teacher should be on the same team. Dad and teacher should be on the same team. Something has gone wrong, but they're not on the same team. But it had been established in that place that they were not on the same team. That's how it goes. Ladies and gentlemen, thanks so much for joining us here on The Right Time. We do this three times a week. Gay Bassane handles everything behind the scenes. Thank you, sir. Thanks to our If You Haven't Heard contributors. Thanks to David Leonard of the New York Times. Check out his story on the baby formula crisis at NewYorkTimes.com. Thanks to Nathan Solis of the LA Times. Check out his story on the bodies floating to the surface of Lake Mead at LATimes.com. And thanks to Anna Wolf of Mississippi Today. Check out her story about the state of Mississippi trying to get $24 million in welfare funds from Brett Favre. Also, the Right Time Book Club. We will be starting June 13th. The book, King of the World by David Remnick. It's bio of Muhammad Ali. It is an excellent book. Pulitzer Prize winner. Check that out. We will have Howard Bryant join us to talk about this. We'll have Corey Erdman of The Zone to talk about this. And we'll also have David Remnick, who is the editor-in-chief of The New Yorker, to talk about this as we go with the book club. So check it out. Get a hold of the book. It is in print. It won't be as hard for you to find as some of those other ones that I selected without thinking about. They were in print. Remember, follow the right time. Rate us. Review us. Give us five stars. You only give us four stars. I'm inclined to believe you are a hater. And we'll talk to you guys in a couple of days. Take it easy. Thanks for checking out The Right Time with Bomani Jones Podcast. You can listen or follow on the ESPN app or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Right Time with Bomani Jones.